So then we come to chapter 14. We're told all these weird names. You probably read and you're like, I have no idea what's going on. We're told there are four nations along the Mesopotamia region, Tigris and Euphrates River. And they're going to go to war with five nations along the Dead Sea. Israel is the most important land in all of the world. And here's why. Why would God take Abram and say, I'm going to put you in that country that's about the size of Rhode Island. And I'm going to bless you tremendously like that. Now, if you live in this time period, you'd be like, man, God, if you wanted to bless us, you put us in the Mesopotamia, where the water is always there, or you put us along the Nile River, which is even more stable and never really floods in a wiping you out kind of sense, never disappears. Instead, you put us in this land that is only fertile when the rain comes. And before we even get to the end of Isaac's life, we're going to have two famines already. I mean, how many often famine? Joseph, famine, Isaac, famine, Abraham, famine with the book of Ruth, famine, famine, famine. Like, really, this is your idea of blessing God? And where does everybody always go to escape Canaan in a famine? Egypt. So why not that, God? Why do you give us that? Well, one of the reasons is this. This is the center of all trade. All trade in the world has to go through Canaan. Because they don't have ships yet that are able to mass produce large cargoes yet. So if they do bring ships, they don't really dock here in Egypt because all along Africa is a lot of cliffs. So it's hard to dock ships there. This is a very easy place to dock ships, but not an easy place to get a lot of supplies and carts off your ship because this is a very marshy, mucky territory. You don't really want to dock your ships up north of where the head tights are, because that's a rocky cliff too, like Ireland. The only place that's easy for a ship to dock and the ground is solid enough to get supplies and stuff off is Canaan, which means all trade from the Orient to the Eastern Europe and back has to go through Canaan. But not only that, Egypt and the Mesopotamia are the two biggest empires right now. And you don't trade through the desert because nobody survives. You can survive as an individual maybe moving through there, but even that's really risky, let alone transporting goods. So that means everybody has to go up through Canaan and now down through Canaan, which means all roads go through Canaan, which means you're not going to just have your resources of your land. You're going to have access to all the resources of all the lands. Not only that, The only way that this land can produce fertile crops is if the rains come. But the only way the rains are going to come is if God sends the rains. But the only way that God would send the rains is if you're obedient. So it makes them dependent upon God. Egypt, you're not dependent upon God. Mesopotamia, you're not dependent upon God. Israel's soil is so rich that when the rains do come, it will produce clusters of grapes that takes two people to carry them. We've learned in the book of Numbers, chapter 13 and 14. But if the rains don't come, it will be a place that you'll want to escape. And so God says, if you obey me, I will send the rains and you will be blessed. It requires them to be in a relationship with them. And when they don't obey him, then Elijah comes and says, no rain for three years. And so it makes you dependent upon God and all the resources come through. But here's the other thing. Is it easier for me, if you were my disciples, to take you and send you out into the world? 
Or is it easier for all traitors to come through this room and then you convert them and they go back to the world? The reality is if you have all these people who are trading and they come through your country because everybody does, and then they see your country and they're like, wow, you are far more blessed than any other country that I've ever seen in my entire life, i.e. the Queen of Sheba coming to see Solomon. How? Well, the gods are always responsible for everything in the ancient world. So your, first, your next answer is First Peter. Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is found in you. Let me tell you about my God. And then that traitor becomes converted. And that traitor then goes back to his country. And we know that missionaries in their own countries are far more successful than a missionary from another country who doesn't understand the culture very well. And so now you've made a nation completely dependent upon you, and if they truly are dependent upon you, they will be blessed like you would never believe. All trade comes through them, which means you're going to be a light to the world. That's why he picked this land. That's why he picked this land. And even to this day, back then, everybody wanted it because it was the road for all trade. Today, everybody wants that land because that's where all the oil is. Okay? And if it's not there, that's the only way you can get the oil in and out from other regions in that territory. So it is the most sought-after land. Whoever controls this territory controls trade. We know that Egypt has not quite yet become so powerful that they control Canaan yet. In fact, it's going to be Joseph who gives Egypt control over Canaan. But Mesopotamia is powerful enough that they can defeat the kings of Canaan anytime they want, but they're not powerful enough to control the territory of Canaan. Does that make sense? So what they do is, even though they don't have enough power, enough army, enough resources to move down there and set up camp and control them, they do have enough power to come down and kick their butt every once in a while. So they basically say, pay us a tax, and if you pay us a tax, we won't kill you. So what this does means we don't have to expend resources to control this territory to get the trade, but at the same time, we will get taxes from the trade, and if you don't, then we'll destroy you. So these five nations for 12 years have been taxed by the nations in the Mesopotamia. And the nations of Mesopotamia are up there, and the ones in the south decide, you know what? It's been 12 years. I think we've paid enough taxes. I think we've become strong enough and powerful enough that we can throw off the yoke and have no fear. So in the 13th year, they stop paying taxes. Now, it's going to take a while for you to realize that your taxes aren't paying because it's not like you can pay it with Bitcoin like you can today. It's not an instant transfer. And it's going to take a while to mass the armies and come back down south. So we know that kings all the way from the Hittites all the way down to Elam unite together to attack the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they decide, you know what? We don't think you're powerful enough to stop paying your taxes. And they bring their armies down through Canaan, and they attack Sodom Gomorrah. And guess what? The kings of the south were wrong. They actually weren't strong enough to defeat them. So they take them, and as a, because you did not pay taxes, tax, we're going to take your women and your children, your resources and supplies, and kidnap them and take them off. So basically, everybody who survived, and, everybody, and only the people that we can afford to take along with us, they're going to become slaves. And who just happens to be a part of that? Lot and his family. So this is how chapter 14 begins. Why? Is Lot part of the rebellion against the cities of the north? 
Probably not. We don't know for sure, but given the way that he is acting in chapter 19, suggests to us that he's not part of it. But Lot chose to move closer to rebellious people. Therefore, he will reap the consequences of rebellious people. Here's the result. Lot may not be himself corrupted yet, but he chose to live among corrupted people. Therefore, he will face the consequences of corrupted people. That doesn't mean that God is judging him and punishing him because God does not punish the righteous, as we will learn in chapter 18 and 19. But that doesn't mean that you're protected from consequences of making bad decisions, which we all know that. And so Lot is reaping that. A servant comes down and tells Abram what has just happened. So what does Abram do? He takes 318 trained men. Now, from, from studies and research and papers and all that kind of stuff, we have discovered that 318 men is actually a pretty good-sized army for somebody in this territory during this time period. It's not going to be anywhere close to five, four nations from the north that are more military-oriented and a nation and have united their armies together. So four nations are going to have at least 300 men who are more nation and military oriented times four, 318 minutes and still not a lot against them. But this says something. If Abram has 318 men who he's confident that they can go to war with him, that suggests that he's got at least three times the amount of people that he's taken care of, given their wives and children. So Abram's got large people. He may not have, and I think this is something that we don't really think about very often, but Abram may not have his own family, but he has so many servants and so many people that have attached themselves to him that the people under his command are at least in the thousands. Because if you had 318 fighting men, then they are probably all married, and you probably have at least one kid in a culture where people have lots of kids. So we're talking about there's at least a thousand people who are under Abram's command. That's a lot of people. Why? Some of them are slaves that he's bought. Some of them are just people who have said, you've got a lot of money, you've got a lot of power, I can't afford to buy my own animals and shear them, and I can't afford to buy my own land. So if you provide me with shelter and food, then I will work for you. Kind of like a Jacob scenario. And that was not uncommon in the ancient world. Like, provide my, my basic needs for my family, and I will work for you. Servanthood. Slavery was different in the ancient world than our American history slavery. It could get bad, but most of the time it was more of what we would think of indentured servanthood. And so these people are loyal to him. So he's trained them. Now remember, they're keepers of livestock. So they're trained well enough to fight off people who want to steal your animals. And even we're, we know from David that there's bears and lions, which they're all extinct in Israel today. But there were at least threats there. So we're talking about 318 men who know how to fight, but 318 shepherds who also know how to fight, is very different than going against four nations with standing armies. But Abram thinks he can do it. Why? Because he's beginning to learn that God is not limited. God is not limited. So he takes 318 men, and we're not given details of the battle. Very rarely are we ever told how battles are fought in the Bible. So if you watch the History Channel, and they love to do these documentaries on how they fought battles, they're making it all up. We know little details here and there in the book of Judges, but what you're going to find as you read through the Bible, most of the time Israel does not fight the battles. Most of the time God 
fights the enemy through nature, supernaturally. Or he causes the enemy to be so confused that they start killing themselves or each other. We're not given a lot of details because God doesn't care about the battle. And here's the other thing. When you get to the book of Joshua, which is the most battle-oriented book in the entire book, it just says, he defeated this nation, he defeated this nation, he defeated this nation. We're not really given a lot of details. The only city that we're really given a great a lot of detail on how the battle was fought was them walking around a city wall and it collapsing. And the reason why is because for us, that's everything in movies. The movies they have to have epic battles. World War I, World War II, Civil War, the War of 1812, they're epic battles. Why? Because it's man in his own resources against man in his own resources. And it's always epic. But with God, it's not epic. It's just done. And that's what you must understand is God doesn't have epic battles in the Bible because they're never epic. The only time battles get epic in the Bible is when Israel is not trusting in God. And then all of a sudden it becomes epic of who's going to win. And even the book of Revelation, everybody thinks there's this great battle between God and Satan, and they duke it out. All it does is it says Satan shows up with his army, and fire comes out of heaven, consumes them all. The end. Okay, it's not epic. And that's what you must understand. It's like a giant going against a flea. It's not going to be epic. And so we're not given details on the battle, because the battle was won by God. So Abram routes the 318 men, he routes them. So they move up to Damascus. So we're told that they come down and they defeat the cities here and they probably would have taken the king's highway. This is, there's two major roads, well three really, but two major and a, second, a third one. The way of the sea goes up along the sea. This is mostly for travelers and people going from city to city. It's very lush. It's like the business route on a highway. You go through every single city. You hit every single marketplace. And it's because you don't want to go very far without restocking water and supplies if you're a trader and you're moving from city to city. The King's Highway, this is a deserty, hard surface, plateau, barren region. And this is a better road for chariots and armies that want to move very quickly and are spread out very widely. And so most likely they came down, they moved back up the King's Highway to Damascus. And we're told that there they recuperate. Because Damascus is the last city that you're going to encounter before you get to Haran, which is up there at the top of the Tigris River, sorry, the Euphrates River, that you're going to be able to restock. And that's like a 400-mile journey. And so they're in Damascus, and they're restocking, and Abram begins to chase them. Now, most likely, he probably is able to move faster than them because they're carrying supplies, donkeys, camels, slaves, servants, women, and children that they've just kidnapped. They don't move fast. He has 318 men on foot running after them. And they begin a guerrilla warfare. And we just know this from other, not that the Bible tells us, but we know this is typically how they fought battles in that region. So most likely, he probably just hits them hard, and they freak out, and they drop their supplies behind so they can move a little bit faster. He comes in and hits them again, and they move a little bit faster and drop until eventually they probably have abandoned all their slaves and abandoned all their supplies, and they move on. So it's most likely probably given on how we've read many, 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 many battles from that time period, how it was fought. But the reality is God gives them that victory, and God allows them to rescue Lot. 
And there's two things going on here. Yes, Lot has walked away, but when has God ever walked away from anybody who's walked away from him? Abram's beginning to learn that if you worship God, you pursue people. You pursue people. He could have written Lot off. We know lots of biological fathers who write off their kids when their kids walk away from them and abandon everything. Lots of fathers don't, but we know lots of fathers do that. It would be even easier in a territory where not only is this not your son, this is your nephew, and where honoring your mother and father is taken way more seriously than it is today to the point of stoning, that most fathers do write off their kids, let alone their nephew. If Abram was a true Near Eastern father, he would have never rescued Lot. But Abram is a father that's being transformed by God, and he pursues Lot. And he risks everything to chase them down. So he chases them down, he brings them back. Now, in case you think this is just him getting really lucky, which I know we don't, but let's just assume we've never read this story before. Two things tell you this is definitely God. One, when Abram gets back to Sodom, the king of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is going to come out, and Abram is going to pay him a tithe of everything that he won in the war, or the battle, whatever you want to call it, which says that Abram believes that God gave him the victory, or he would not be paying a tithe to God for the victory. Two, when we get to chapter 15, God is going to say, I am your shield and your rock. The shield is a military language. So God takes credit for the victory immediately after that. So two things. Abram believes that God gave him victory by tithing. And God proclaims that he gave Abram victory by calling himself Abram's shield. And so this is how we know. Remember, in case you don't know, the narrator is always there to let you know what's really going on. After verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating Kedalaramur, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And now he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth, worthy of praise of the Most High God, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and take the possessions for yourself. Now there's a contrast. Melchizedek, his name means the righteous king. Most likely the idea of the rightful king, the legitimate king. Or he might, his name might mean Melech is king, or it might be the righteous Sadduk. Those two names that I just gave you, you're like, what? Those are names of gods, pagan gods. So his name may be, this God is the rightful king, or this God is righteous, or it may just be, I am the rightful king. Now, that's probably what it means in a true, like, etymology, breaking the words down sense. But when you get to the book of Hebrews, it tells you that he's the king of righteousness, that he is a righteous, godly man. 
Now, we don't need Hebrews for that because we're told that he worships the Most High God. Now, that doesn't automatically mean that he worships Yahweh. Because the Most High God is used of all the gods. Baal is called the Most High God. Zeus is called the Most High God. Augustus, the Roman Caesar, called himself the Most High God. Pharaoh does. Okay, that doesn't necessarily mean that. But in the context of Abram, who's given his complete loyalty to Yahweh, and the context of him paying a tithe to Melchizedek, and the context that God is giving a lot of space to Melchizedek here, and the context of Melchizedek blessing him in return, and the fact that Melchizedek calls his God the God of the heavens and the earth. Remember, there is no God that controls all the sky and all the earth. So this tells us that he truly does worship Yahweh, which tells us that Abram is not the only monotheistic person out there. We get this idea that Israel is the only monotheistic person and Abram might be the only one at this time, but that's not true. Okay, because we're actually going to encounter a few others later. Abimelech might even be a monotheistic by the end of the, of the life of Abram, which is going to, one, tell you that God is working in lots of lives beyond just the chosen people, but it also is going to make another point later when we get to chapter 20 and 21, we'll make that point. So he comes out. Yes? Does this infer that Abram might have known that? Yes. If he immediately gives tithes to Melchizedek, look, if you've been wandering around the land of the Canaanites, you're going to find people that look like and talk like you very quickly. It's like going to um, Ohio State University and finding Camp Sure Safe for Christ or Athletes in Action very quickly. You don't want to be a no. So he, yes, and that's my next point. Notice that the Melchizedek comes out to greet Abram, but Sod, the king of Sodom just shows up. Melchizedek blesses Abram, but Melchizedek says, give me what is mine. So the king of Sodom only talks when Abram first initiates. And then when he does talk, it's very short and it's give me. Melchizedek initiates the conversation and blesses Abram and gives him things from God. And he's very wordy, way more words that are very flowery. So this says that they know each other, and it says that Melchizedek is just like Yahweh. Just like Abram is generous because that's the God he worships, Melchizedek is generous because that's the God he worships, but Sodom doesn't worship a generous God, so all he wants is back. And this is the contrast that is happening here. So Melchizedek, we're also told that he's king and priest, which is very important because according to the law of God, that's forbidden for one person to be king and priest simultaneously. And if you really think, if you want to know if God's serious, well, you just go to the book of Samuel, and when Solomon, or Samuel, all these S's, when Saul, who is king, acts like a priest, God kills him. So God takes it very seriously, which is the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. If Jesus king and high priest, and that's forbidden by the law, but yet he's a man who does not violate the law because he's sinless, then how does that work? And that's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. Okay, that's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. So Melchizedek is king and high priest, which this is the beginning of our argument, or not my argument, the narrator's argument, is that one could be righteous without the law. This is the whole argument of the Torah. 
that one cannot have the law and still be righteous. And this will be very important because Melchizedek is going to bless Abram, which means everybody knows that the greater blesses the inferior. And Abram, we're going to be told, is the father of the nation. There's no other person that's greater than Abram other than Elijah and Moses. And so if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then Melchizedek is truly righteous and there's no law yet. And then we're going to see Abram, who's going to violate the law over and over again, marrying your sister, if she truly is a sister, and doing other things. And yet, chapter 15 is going to declare him righteous. So this is the beginning of the narrator's argument that one can be righteous without the law. That one can be righteous without the law. Now, just hold on to that idea, because that's a big, giant topic right now that I'm not ready to deal with. But if you really want to get into that, then go to my study on the book of Hebrews on my website and go verse by verse on that argument. So if that confuses you, then go to Hebrews and listen to my audio. But for right now, just know that this is the argument. He then blesses him, and Abram pays him a tithe. Now, the word tithe in Hebrew literally means tenth. Okay, so some people are like, where does it say 10% in the Bible? The word tithe literally means 10%. Okay, and if you think tenth, is unrealistic, well, just wait till you get the law, and God actually requires three-tenths from you in tithing. So, but that's a whole other conversation. So, Abram, notice, gives him everything. And the king of Sodom actually wants to give him reward. Now, one of the reasons the king of Sodom wants to give him reward is not because Sodom's, like, really generous, but because if Abram gives everything back to Sodom, then Sodom is indebted to Abram and owes Abram something. Now, that's something I never got. Like, you watch movies, and people fight in the war together, and one guy saves another guy, and they're out of war, and it's been 15 years, and there are cops or something later, and he's like, you owe me. He's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, shouldn't you just do it because you're friends and you fought next to each other? Like, the whole, like, you owe me doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it does on a human level, but if you're literally fighting in foxholes with each other side by side, there shouldn't be any of this, you owe me. But even with that kind of a friendship, we still have this idea that you owe me. You owe me. You're indebted to me. And so the Sodom, if he gives a reward to Abram, he's no longer indebted to Abram. Abram can't come back on him and call a marker on him. So he wants to give a reward to Abram. But Abram refuses. Why? Because he doesn't want Sodom to take credit for making him blessed. You see, if he gets blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed, and the whole world looks at him and says, wow, how is it that you are more blessed than anybody else? The king of Sodom could say, I gave him a huge reward. But if he accepts nothing from Sodom, then the only person who gets the credit is Yahweh. Because all glory goes to Yahweh. Remember, this is how God works. I know sometimes it feels like God is very selfish when he says, I want all the glory. All the glory should go to me. And you're like, wait a minute, God. If we're supposed to be selfless and you're self-sacrificing, then why do you always want all the fame and the glory? And then you tell us not to act that way. Or remember, God is the highest and most awesome thing in the entire universe. He is the only one worthy of praise because anytime you praise any human or anything in the creation, it's only because they're that because God made them that way. So you're giving glory and honor to the wrong thing. But here's the other thing. 
God's not selfish. God doesn't ask for glory because he's like, I was really feeling depressed this morning because so many people are walking away from me. And now I feel really good about myself after that worship service on Sunday morning. That's not how God operates. It's not like he needs it to feel better about himself. We need it to feel better about ourselves. But it's the same reason if you go watch a movie and you think this movie is great, what's the first thing you begin to do? You tell everybody about the movie. Why? Because you're getting paid by the director, every person that goes to watch the movie? No, because everybody's going to think how awesome you are that you're able to sit on your butt for two hours and watch a movie and keep your eyes open? No, because it was so enjoyable that you want other people to experience that blessing of joy that you experience. And then you want to be able to talk to them about them so that you join them in community on it. If God is the best thing that could ever happen to you, because only connected to God do you experience joy, hope, peace, contentment, satisfaction, then you give God all glory so that everybody will know how awesome he is, so that they'll want to know him, and then they'll experience all those things in their life. God wants all the glory because he's selfless. Because the more people who think how awesome he is, the more people who come to him, the more he can give them to make their joy complete. That's how it works. God is not selfish in glory. He is selfless in glory. And so this is what Abram is saying. If everybody knows that God is responsible for my blessings, he gets more glory and more people want to know him and more people get to experience all these cool things that I'm experiencing. And Abram gets it. Realize, it hasn't even been 10 years yet. This guy's been a pagan for 75 years. All he's ever known is jacked up selfish gods that are limited in their power and their love. And 10 years, no Bible, no veggie tales, no pastors, no Holy Spirit, no commentaries. And 10 years, he has got the most fundamental idea about who God is. He is beyond all understanding. And he is responsible for all things. And the more people who know that, the more they'll be blessed. That's the gospel right there. Ten years, all by himself, with nothing, and he gets it. This says something about Abram's relationship with God. Any questions?